Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode eight in the book of John titled, My Food is to Do the Will of Him Who Sent Me, from John chapter four, verses 27 through 54. I'm Joel Harvard, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, this is a very exciting, engaging portion of John, and I think it's one of the great missionary passages in the Bible where Jesus is pointing out to the disciples these crowds of Samaria coming to hear the gospel, and he's telling them to uh, lift up their eyes and look on these, he calls them fields, and that they're ready for harvest. It's a powerful image. Can you give us just an overview of Jesus' interaction with the disciples, and then what we learn also from the miracle of the Father who comes in and petitions Jesus to heal his son? Yeah, absolutely. Everything in John's gospel is written for one end, and that is that people in reading this account would believe simply, if you could put it that way, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have eternal life. And so both uh, the Samaritan woman and her uh, her fellow uh, Samaritans there in that village end up believing in Jesus. And the royal official with his son who's dying, um, when he sees the clear evidence of Jesus' supernatural healing, then he and all his family believe. I mean, both of them have the same end. Meanwhile, we've got the story of the apostles, the, the disciples, and and they, um, they're they not on the same page, it seems. They need to be instructed. And Jesus had said that he would do this. He would say, he said, follow me and I will make you to become fisher, fishers of men. And But they weren't that way. And, and that's encouraging to me because neither am I. I need to have Jesus work on my heart so that I have the kind of focus and the kind of passion that Jesus had for winning lost people. The harvest is still white. Uh, there are still tons of people ready to believe, but the church tends to lag behind in zeal. But Jesus' example of my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work uh, stands over all of us, challenging us to redeem the time, make the most of our lives here on earth, and uh, especially focus on being instruments in the hands of God to bring people to saving faith. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read verses 27 through 54. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, 
For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So that was a long passage of scripture, but mm, we're going to go through it as best we can. Yeah. We picked up the account when Jesus had been dialoguing with the Samaritan woman from episode number seven. We talked about that last week. Mm. And the text says, meanwhile, his disciples came back and they see his interaction, um, but they don't, they don't ask him, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And then uh, she went away. And what do you make of her response? Yeah, it's r- remarkable. Uh, I think just a little detail when John says, leaving her water jar. So it's amazing how Jesus, this conversation he has with her has captivated her soul. And we're going to see that when in the things she says to her Samaritan, to her Samaritan neighbors. Um, she's, she's overwhelmed by what's happened with Jesus. And uh, she has been brought to a powerful um, saving faith. But just leaving that water jar shows she's not that interested at this point. She was thinking about the water, water, water. You know, and she's all, that's all she could think about. But at some point, she moves over to think about spiritual things. And so it's remarkable how she also is willing to go engage with her neighbors. Uh, it seems to some degree people she had been seeking to avoid. It's like a newfound boldness. She's got boldness. She doesn't care what they think about her. Um, nothing is more important for her than getting her her fellow Samaritans to come talk to Jesus. So that's a very praiseworthy example of passion in, in evangelism that we should all yearn to follow. I'm reminded of the scripture where Paul says, I, we believed and so we speak from 2 Corinthians 4, this idea that is when you believe the word for real, you want to tell others about it. And I think this happens to her. Yeah, she's so excited. And, and the things she says are, are quite remarkable um, as she goes to, to interact with them. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And it's just amazing. First of all, obviously an overstatement. He didn't have enough time to say everything she ever did. But I think she knew he could have. Um, there was such an amazing sense of his knowledge, his probing of her soul. Um, and she's, she's just stunned by Jesus' supernatural person, and she's, and she's so excited and wants to share. So she says to them, come and see this man. Uh, could this be the Christ? Is, this, is it possible that we're actually uh, seeing the Messiah, the anointed one here? Yeah, and she, she was very compelling. They end up coming out of right. the city. They, they originally believe because of his words. Some do, and they, they come to, to see him. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, obviously, there's a tremendous change in her. So I th- they don't have anything to go on. 
Although we, we, should, we should know that there was something surprising and strange about a bunch of Jews coming into the Samaritan village to buy food. So they're already kind of probably on edge and like, wow, something's going on here that's highly unusual. I think the Jews usually, as it says, had no dealings with Samaritans, wouldn't have been there. So they're like, something's up. So in any case, they're ready to come out and talk to Jesus. In verse 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So they're thinking about his physical needs. They're thinking yeah. about... You know, he was tired. He was sitting by the well. Yeah. Probably what I would be thinking about, to sure. be honest. Sure. Um, but Jesus makes this remarkable statement. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. What did he mean by that? Yeah, I've found this to be very convicting. I mean, again, the whole thing, to me, John chapter 4 is a lesson in evangelism. It's many other things as well. But for me, how can I be a zealous, skillful, personal evangelist? We talked about that more last time. So therefore, at some point, it occurred to me how much I am like the disciples. Um, and that is that the woman had far more impact on the Samaritan village than they did. So here we've got the apostles that Jesus, that Paul says the, the church is built on the, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so in the, in the book of, of the Acts of the Apostles and the future church history, these folks are going to be spirit-filled, passionate, zealous evangelists and missionaries for Christ, just not yet. And the reason you know that is they didn't bring anyone with them. The, the Samaritans didn't come at their word and see this man, could this be the Christ? It seems all they did was go into the village and contract to buy some food. It's the only thing they're thinking about. It's like, hey, let's eat. <laughs> and so I actually almost insert an extra word in what Jesus said to them. Uh, he didn't say it, but I, I think of it this way. I have food to eat you apparently know nothing about based on your pathetic track record here. Um, and we know that his food is to win lost people. That's what he's thinking about. He's thinking about missions. He's thinking about evangelism, winning lost souls. They're not thinking about that at all. And so it just, it represents to me the number of empty trips there have been in my life, similar to their trip into the Samaritan village to buy food, where it's, I'm just operating it at the physical, fleshly, earthly level. And I just do my business. I go to work, uh, like when I was working in secular employment as a, as a mechanical engineer, I would just have whole days in which I, I don't really think I did anything for Christ. I just went, did my job, and came home. And I wonder how many of our hearers, how many people in our churches are like that. They just stick to business, get the things done, and they don't seem to know the food that Jesus is talking about here. Yeah, I think it, it takes faith to live the kind of life where, you know, Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they're white for harvest. I think yeah. if you looked up out of your cubicle, mm -hmm. I used to work in a cubicle on, I think there's 400 people on my floor. Um, I don't think it was readily apparent that they were right, what right for the harvest. Yeah. Um, but after a couple of years, we did have gospel conversation with people yeah. and, and there was actually, pe people changed, you yeah. know, and so, but it was, it's not readily apparent every day that, that the fields are ripe for the harvest. No, you've got to ask for spiritual vision. That's what faith is all about, the eyesight of the soul. And to be able to see people as they really are, you know, as Ephesians says, without hope and without God in the world. And we want to be so filled with hope, so evidently, obviously hope-filled, thinking about heaven, can't wait to go and be with the Lord, and, and not, not afraid of death, and looking forward to the rest of our lives, too. That's a hope-filled life. And First Peter 3 says that we should always be prepared to give anyone um, who asks a reason for the hope that's in us. So um, I think I need to do much better. Based on the disciples' failure here, I want to be 
I want to be much more mindful of, of that, the very thing you said, seeing people as they really are. And that's fascinating to me, too, that Jesus uses the analogy here of food. You know, I have food to eat you know nothing about. That's a, that's a powerful image for me. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, Jesus accomplishing the will of the Father. Nobody could ever perfectly imitate that. Um, so can you first talk about just Jesus living to do the will of the Father? But then, if you could, just expand on that, because I think we're supposed to follow in his steps and make this the ambition of our life as well. Yeah, I think Jesus said it for our benefit, and then the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle John to write it timelessly now for 20 centuries, that all Christians would ponder these words for ourselves. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. And so he's going to say at the end of this gospel, as the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. And so we've been sent, and so we can click right into this verse and say, we need to do the will of him who sent us. And what are we sent to do? We're sent to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. That's what we're sent to do. Now, when he says, my food, I think what he's saying here is... Um, you know, there is a tendency that we have to do everything for our, our appetite, for our stomach. You know how Paul says in, uh, in Philippians, their God is their stomach. And, uh, you know, another text says that all man's efforts are for his stomach. You know, everything we do is so that we can feed ourselves. Food is appealing. It's delicious. It's nourishing. Uh, it's a center of fellowship. People have meals. They have feasts together. Um, all of these things are important for our, in our culture. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. It's one of the number one food times of the year in which we gather around a, a laden table and feast together. And so when Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, he's saying, this is what gives me energy. It gives focus to my life. I find it delicious. It brings pleasure to me. It's all of these metaphors of food. We are not to live for our temporal, earthly appetites. And I fear that many American Christians are not involved in evangelism and not involved in missions because, honestly, they're behaving like their God is their stomach. They live for earthly, temporal pleasures and not for the work uh, of the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, I think it gets the idea of what do you live for? You know, even people who wouldn't be given to, you know, given to, you know, pleasure, things like that. Maybe they're, they spend all their time focusing on you know, stocking up reserves for their family, making sure their kids are taken care of, which are good things. But the question is, what do you live for? Like, you know, is that, you know, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And, and he did that, and I think we're supposed to follow that. It's powerful, too. And, and I also think this never stops. I mean, if you take Jesus' words and say, you know, this really should, should dictate everything in my life, not just evangelism, but everything, in my marriage, my parenting, my prayer life, finances, everything. 168 hours a week, 24-7, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. What is his work for me today? We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. They're not going to be only works of evangelism. They're not even going to be mostly works of evangelism. If we have families, we do need to hold down our jobs. We need to do the works, the good works he has for us to do. But here's the idea. The idea is there's no quitting time. There's no nine to five here. At the end of the day, we punch out of serving God. There's never a time. The moment we punch out from serving God, we go right into sin because we're self-directed, selfish. We're living for our own pleasures. So at every moment to say this to ourselves, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I, I want to please him at every moment. That's the, that should be the desire. What do you get out of the analogy of the harvest, the farmer and the harvest? He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? 
And then he says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields. They're white for the harvest. Mm. Harvest is now, he's saying. Now, in the first analogy, he says, four months more and then the harvest. Um, and so you have a sense in your agricultural world, he's saying to them, of a sequence, of a pattern. And when the harvest comes, you've got to get that wheat in the barn or that, that, that barley in the barn. You could imagine a hailstorm and, and you'll starve. So you got to get that in for protection. Uh, it could survive maybe early on, like happened in Egypt during the plagues, uh, because others sprang up later, they survived. But the things that had sprung up, they were vulnerable. And so once the harvest comes, you need to get it in. That's also a joyful time. You know, think of all the labor you've done, all the, all the plowing, uh, the, the breaking up of the hardened soil, and then the planting and uh, the covering over of the seeds with dirt. And then, you know, you're praying back in, 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 that, in that ancient Near Eastern culture in that time, praying for the seasonal rains to come, and they came. And then you see them growing up, and you're anticipating the whole time the harvest. You're anticipating the fruit of all your labor. Now it's come. It's hard work, but it's joyful work. And so Jesus is using that analogy, but he's saying, look, the time is now. And, and he's right, because these Samaritans are coming out, and they will, within hours crossed over from death to life. They will within hours believe in Jesus. So he's saying, you got to lift up your eyes. You got to see the time is now to bring these people in and, and complete their, their journey of faith by trusting them, trusting in me. So for me, it's just um, a matter of, there's a whole process here, and he's going to talk about that, about people have different roles to play. Um, but in that case, that day, those people were ready uh, to, come in and to, uh, to come to faith in Christ. He speaks of rejoicing. What does the rejoicing have to do with the sowing and the reaping? And how does verse 36 really promote unity among those who labor in the gospel? Yeah, so he, he says the reaper draws its wages, he har his, his wages, he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that, and he says this, the sower and the reaper may be glad together. One sows, another reaps. And this is the exact same thing that Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So there, Paul's point is, we're nothing. God is everything. Jesus' point here is there's collaborative effort. There's different, different roles to play. And so one sows, another reaps. What he's saying there is they both are working you know, for the ultimate harvest. And he said, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have done the labor. Others have done the hard work. That could be the woman. And there could be other things, you know, in mind here. But I, I think that's important. Sometimes the hardest role in evangelism, you see zero fruit, just zero fruit. There's even whole generations of missionaries that go and they see almost nothing and then they die. And then the next generation, just the thing explodes. And I find that interesting because it's so humbling for the laborer. You know, God's saying, I'm going to remove you and then the harvest is going to come. But I think the point is we should not grow weary or be discouraged if we have one of those harder roles. So here's how it works. Individuals, you're reaching out, sharing the gospel with them. Um, they push back hard. They get emotional. They might get angry. Um, then providentially, it's time for you to go to another job or some other thing. You never see that person again. 
But God may well have used you to break up some hardened soil, to bring some hard issues to that person's life. And he's ordained that 11 years later, some family tragedy will happen, some other things, and he'll be ready at that point to hear more about the gospel. He already heard it from you, but he wasn't ready. But you did the hard labor. And then others come along and they do the joyful work of, of bringing in the harvest. So there's, there's just different roles to play in this work of evangelism and missions. I was uh, out downtown witnessing to some people and... Uh... We came across this young man, and uh, he and his girlfriend were there, and we were sharing the gospel with him. And as as we're sharing with him, he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've heard this before. My roommate was just explaining this to me <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Yeah. He's like, yeah, we, he's like, we talked for like six hours about it, you know? And, and I was just like thanking God for that roommate. He didn't come to faith uh, in our conversation either, but yeah. it was amazing to me that God was sending this guy um, multiple witnesses from different angles, and I yeah. hope he comes to faith. That's powerful. I, I, I've had so many stories like this. One is, I remember walking um, down, a, um, it was in Boston, it was a city street, and uh, walked by someone and I felt a strong compulsion from the Spirit to talk to that total stranger, just totally walked by him in the, on a city street, to, to turn, turn around and go back and say something about Christ. And I was like, that's just weird, all right? No. But it was amazing. It was like there was a spiritual bungee cord between me and that person. So the further I walked away, the more powerful that compulsion became. And finally, I was like, all right, I have no choice. I mean, it's clear he wants. So I turned around, caught up to the person. I wasn't weird and ran, but I I had to walk hard to catch up to him. And then I didn't know what to say, so I, I just got into the conversation. And the person looked completely confused. It went exactly like you would fear that it would. And they're like, you know, and then it ended. There was nothing more for me to do. So then I, I turned and continued my walk in the same direction where I started. There was no bungee cord, there's nothing. And it was just like, I was like, what was that all about? I was obedient to what I felt the Lord wanted me to do. I know nothing more about that person. Never seen him again. So I have to imagine in heaven there might be some explanation why. I'm not saying that the person's going to end up in heaven or not. I have no idea. I just know that sometimes God calls people to do the hard work and then others are there for the joyful moment when the harvest comes on them. Yeah. So I might have been just playing a little role there to break up some things in the person's mind and get them ready for a conversation they'd have the next day or something like that. Yeah. God's <laughs> ways are amazing and mysterious. Yeah. Let's talk about the results of the woman's testimony in Samaria and then what happens when they actually encounter Jesus for the first time. So it says that they believe because of her testimony, verse 39, but then they came to him. And what was the impact of his words on their ears? Well, you know, it's amazing because, you know, what she said is not enough. There's so many things that need to be discussed. I mean, we need the whole biography of Jesus. We need to understand who he was. Virgin birth, sinless life, miracles, all that. They didn't know hardly anything about Jesus, so they needed information. Can't call him one of whom you've never heard. But it's interesting, in this case, Jesus is the evangelist. He's the one who's going to tell them all about him. So he's there for two days. They're there for two days. So who can say all the things that they discuss and all the heritage, the history, the... You know, all the things that divided Jews and Samaritans, I'm sure they brought some of that up. The, the, the woman herself brought it up. You Jews say this, we say that. They probably went through all that. But by the time it was all done, all of his answers were completely satisfactory. And so the rift, at least for this one village, the rift between Jews and Samaritans was gone. And the, the idea of in Ephesians, he has made one new man out of the two. The unity then between Jesus' Jewish followers there and these Samaritan half-breeds 
who they would have despised as theological derelicts, they're now one. They, they love Jesus. They're all part of the unified work, and it's pretty remarkable. Now, what they talked about, I have no idea. But uh, the Samaritans themselves said to the woman, you got it going, but we don't believe just because of what you said, but we believe because of what he said. We have heard from himself, and we believe that he is who you said he is, the Messiah. I love their confession at the end. Uh, they say, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I think John puts that in there for a reason. That's awesome. Yeah, the world being not just a Jewish Savior. Salvation is from the Jews, but it doesn't stay there. And probably one of the most famous uh, articulations of the Great Commission is in Acts 1.8. And you think about what Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's a lot more Samaritans yet to go. And we know Philip had a ministry in Acts 8 in Samaria, and there's all kinds of, there's still miles to travel, but this is the beginning of it. And so it's so beautiful. We Samaritans, we have come to believe he is the savior of the world. What an incredible statement here. And uh, just like um, the, the woman had come to a remarkable um, conviction that Jesus was the Messiah, and they go beyond even Messiah, bigger than that, savior of the world. Yeah. I just think about this in the context of John, where John's giving consistent testimony to who Jesus is. You know, he has, he puts John the Baptist forth, and John the Baptist says, I've seen and know this is the Son of God. And then these villagers of Samaria, you know, this feuding tribe with the Jews, they say, oh, we've seen, we know he's the Savior of the world. And then later, the, the Father, you know, in John 12, announces, uh, uh, you know, this is the one. And then um, in the end, John the, ba uh, John the Apostle he says, this is the one who testifies. I'm the one who testifies in John 19, and I've seen, and, and this testimony is true. So you have all this testimony to who Jesus is, it's awesome. and it's just powerful. Yeah, it is. It's so good. Let's discuss very quickly the, the royal official and his son. So he hears that Jesus has uh, come from Judea and has gone into Galilee, and he goes to him. There's some geographical barriers, it seems, to him coming to meet Jesus in Judea, so he waits till he's down in Galilee, and then he uh, comes to him, begging for healing. What do you get out of Jesus' interaction with this man? Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable what he says. It's similar to the encounter he has in the Synoptic Gospels with the Syrophoenician woman, where he, he's, he kind of puts her off. I mean, kind of, he puts her off. You know, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. And to some degree, testing her to see her resolve, to see what she would say, etc. And And so, in, in, in the same way, it's similar here. Uh, sometimes Jesus, when, when some grieving person like Jairus comes, he doesn't even hesitate, just go, gets up and goes doesn't even he hesitate. Uh, same thing with the, uh, with the centurion whose uh, servant li lay at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus immediately went. And the centurion stops him, says, you don't need to come, but just give the word. Um, but Jesus is so eager and willing. He's, he's a servant of all. But here he makes a statement, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It's an interesting statement. Now, I don't, I don't know if he's exasperated with them, or uh, exactly what. He knew, it says in John 2, he knows all men. He knows what's in someone's man, heart, in, in a man's heart. He knew what was in this man's heart. And so he, he knows what he needs to say. But I think there's also an absolute truth here as well. The signs and wonders that John builds his entire gospel around, seven miraculous signs here. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these signs and the accounts around them are written that you may believe. Jesus himself will later say 
believe on the evidence of the works themselves. The, the miracles are a fit ground. He's going to say it in the next chapter, the works I have done from the Father, which you see me do, these testify to me. So I think it is actually true, absolutely true, that we would not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, if he had not done miracles. So they are a, a suitable, proper ground for our saving faith. Why does he say it here? It's hard to tell. I think he, he definitely, there is a category of people that want continual miracles, that no miracles are enough. One is not enough. They got to see, and they're generally not believing. It's they're, amazing. They, they see the bread multiplied and then they say, what sign do you show us? Yeah, what are you going to do another sign? We'll get to that in John 6, but exactly. So perhaps he's warning this man from needing a continual, you know, a continual display of miraculous power. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. But in the end, John says <laughs> he believed. <laughs> he believed, you know. And I find the it interesting that the servants that he inquires the servants. You know, he says, you know, when did he get better? He he wants to be sure that it was Jesus' word. It wasn't that you know the twenty four hours of the virus ran its course. Sure. It wasn't that he finally got the medicine and he got better over the next week. It's like no, Jesus demonstrated power. He does, and I don't want to talk about that. But but I, I still think you know what's going on here is he wants this man to know it's not going to be a river of miracles until he goes to heaven. I mean, let's be honest. Everyone Jesus healed died of something else. <laughs> so, you know, they didn't die of that because he healed them. Perfect healing. That was gone. But something else would come. And so death is the final enemy. That's not going to be gone. So I think there's a bit of a, a correction, perhaps, in the royal official's heart saying there's not going to be forever miracles here. However, um, you know, he still wants to do the healing. Yeah, in your case, you in your know, case, we'll do lives. it. We'll do it. Yeah. But it's interesting with a Syrophoenician woman, just like this man, just like so many others, you see the tremendous focus on the royal official, the tremendous intensity of a of a father or a mother for a sick child. I mean, there there may be no more emotional, greater love, perhaps even greater than that within a marriage. I think that's great enough, and I, I think it's not to be minimized, but the, the amount of anguish that comes over the possibility of burying a child, there, there are few tragedies as great as that in this world. And so this man has no time, it seems, to debate any theological points. He wants one thing from Jesus, you know, come down before my child dies. Do you think we should make anything of the fact that Jesus speaks healing over and against maybe the idea like Elisha and Elijah, when, when these types of things that come up, you know, send my staff, put it on his head. You know, there, there is a process of the healing with Jesus. He just speaks and the, and the son is healed. Well, it's, again, it's very similar to the Syrophoenician woman. And, and in, in both, both cases, he doesn't say any healing words. He just says it's done. You know, like the, the Syrophoenician woman, he, he says, because of this statement, you may go home, the demon has left your daughter. It's like, what did you do? He didn't say anything to the demon. You just thought it in his mind, shared between him and his father. It's done. It's already done. And I always think that's amazing about the demon. He got his eviction notice immediately. He yeah. found himself out on this demonic behind on the sidewalk, metaphorically. He was out, gone. But, you know, in this case, similar. Um, we don't see anything like be healed. He doesn't go and touch. Frequently he wants to touch. Uh, he, he touched Peter's mother-in-law and she was healed. There, so many, many of his healings are done by touch. But in this case, you can see it wasn't necessary. 
And I think this proves that these, the touches are not necessary and there's not just one way of healing. He does different things at different times. So he says to this man, you may go down, you, you may go, your son will live. And so it's done. He says it. But I like what you said. There, there is um, a, a kind of a scientific approach here, okay, where he's got to ascertain, like you said, was it in fact Jesus' supernatural power? So the go, he goes back and, um, you know, the servants come out and say he's alive. And then he says, I got to ask you a question. When, did, when was he healed? And so, you know, they don't have the kind of precision on time. We, we have, you know, smartphones. We have Verizon time, whatever. So it's about a certain amount of time, but that was accurate enough. You could take a screenshot of the text, you know, and <laughs> that was at 3.46. <clears throat> but again, it shows something about miracles. This is really important, okay? Miracles are usually circumstantial. It has to do with the actual scenario whereby it happens. A clear example is the stilling of the storm. There's nothing miraculous at all about the ending of a storm. All storms end at some point, all of them. What is miraculous is a man asleep in a boat stands up while the boat's filling with water and there's this raging torrent of wind and rain and waves and he raises his hands out over it and says the words, peace be still, and it immediately happens. Now, it's a miracle. And the same thing, there's nothing miraculous about it, healing. Many illnesses are healed by the body's immune system, by natural processes. But it is amazing when somebody touches someone or says some words and they are immediately well from a fever or some other thing. And that's what happened here. Hmm. Do you have any closing comments on this section or just what we've studied in John so far? Well, absolutely. I, I just like what it says in verse 53. Um, he realized this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. So that's it. I mean, that's the point. You know, what is the victory that overcomes the world? It is our faith. That's, that's the thing that must happen to us in this world. Everything else is of lesser importance. What would it profit us to gain the whole world and forfeit our souls? Well, how do we not forfeit our soul? Believe in Jesus. And so how can we help other people now that our souls are not forfeited, but we're going to spend eternity, help other people believe in Jesus. So both the, the, the Samaritan woman and the villagers, and now the royal official and his family, they all became believers, and that's great good news. Amen. Well, that was episode 8 in the book of John. Please join us for episode 9, where we discuss John chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. And I think that is some of the deepest theology we're going to get to in the Gospel of John. Wouldn't mm. you agree? Absolutely. Wow, so, it's going to be powerful. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.